0: This morning's scripture lesson reading is taken from Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 14. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 14. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people, Then there arose some from whom, from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, And they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us.
1: As we begin this morning, just a couple of uh, items to mention. Uh, Number one, thank you for all of those who were able to help at the Chalk the Walk uh, at George Jr. this last week. Um, I got to see some of the pictures, and uh, you all did a wonderful job. Uh, Talk about an open door. Uh, We can be so thankful to God that we can show people how to be more like Jesus just across the street from us. And uh, we are excited about those opportunities uh, for this, uh, this school year. Uh, second, uh, a huge thank you uh, for... Uh, the blessings of of prayer and uh, even allowing us to be gone, both Andy and I and our families, and various others in the congregation as well. I know we're uh, we're gone last week to Tennessee, where 5,100 plus Christians gathered to grow, to encourage, to glorify God together. Uh, And uh, I won't spend a whole lot of time talking about the merits of PTP, talk to those who uh, this was their first time there. Uh, I know that uh, uh, I I think I can speak for Andy when I say a huge thank you, especially to our shepherds who encourage us to grow and to not simply feed, but to be fed. Uh, That is a tremendous thing for us. And uh, we hope that what we were able to be a part of this last week will pay eternal dividends for here. Thank you so much. There are still some traveling. There are some that may not be feeling so well because of a lack of sleep and a a, a lot of uh, travel and all that stuff. Pray for uh, uh, folks. I know that there are others who are still on their way back. We want to continue to pray for them as well. Finally, buckle up. We have a lot that we are going to hopefully cover this morning, so get ready to go at least 60 miles an hour, 75 once we get to I 10. We are going to be talking about Stephen this morning and the faith that Stephen had and how he was able to, even to the point of death, not uh, turn away from God. Stephen is known as the first martyr. But you know, it didn't start that way. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when you have 3,000 plus people added to the church. Everybody had all things in common, and they were taking care of one another, and God was being glorified. But it didn't take very long for certain people to not like what was going on. Because in Acts chapter 4, in verse 18 through 21, enemies started to threaten Christians. But that didn't work. If you look at Acts chapter 4, and verse 21 in particular, notice, the text says, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because the people, for they were all praising God for what had happened. It started with threats, but that didn't work and God was glorified. Then they tried to arrest them in Acts chapter 5 and verse 18, but that didn't work because God rescued them. So they beat them and they charged them not to speak any more in the name of Jesus And then they let them go in Acts chapter 5 and verse 40. And that didn't work. Acts 5, 41 and 42 shows that they glorified God, that they praised Him, and that the church continued to grow. When we discuss Stephen, who is called the first martyr, he is the first one, as far as we see in Scripture, to die after Christ for saying Christ is who He said He is. And what we'll do this morning is we'll simply look at Stephen from two vantage points. Number one, we're going to look at Stephen's Christ-like character. We are introduced to Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I know that was a bit longer reading, and we've already had a longer reading, but you can't get enough of God's word. And what we see here, for the first time in Scripture, Christians are not uh, getting what they need. In Acts chapter 2, everybody had all things in common and nobody was in need. In Acts chapter 3, the same thing. In Acts chapter 4, The same thing in Acts chapter 5, the same thing. But now in Acts chapter 6, a problem has arisen in the church. Greek speaking and and culturally Greek Jews were being neglected in the daily distribution of the needs that the church had. And it was a problem that had to be corrected immediately. And the apostles knew what their ministry needed to be. And they knew that this was something that needed to be taken care of. And so they chose men who were full. And when we look at Stephen in particular, yes, you can look at the other men here, but Stephen will start to stand out in this section. Stephen is said to be full of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen, being said to be full of the Holy Spirit, it really is easy to jump down to the next few verses. In verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Absolutely. Stephen had uh, a, uh, or some miraculous abilities that God was working through him. But that is not the only thing that being full of the Holy Spirit means. Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be full of the Spirit. And then you see what it means to be full of the Spirit in Ephesians 5, 18 and following. How we need to sing to one another. How we need to be thankful to God. And how we need to build each other up. If you want to know what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit, look at Ephesians 5, 18 and following. Through the end of really the chapter. But Stephen is a man who he is said to be full. He is full of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, verse three, they are also, these men that were chosen, are to be full of wisdom. You know, it really isn't just enough to know the facts, but what to do with the facts. It isn't just enough to know the difference between good and what is bad, but between what is good and what is better. In fact, wisdom from God is something we ought to pray for when we're lacking, especially when we're suffering. James chapter 1 and verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And if you continue reading through the book of James, which is all about wisdom, but James chapter 3 speaks of this fact that wisdom, true wisdom comes from above and not from below. And if we're seeking the wisdom that comes from below, there's going to be strife and dissension and envy and rivalry, and the church is going to fall apart. But wisdom is a quality worth praying for because God gives to all who ask abundantly. And it is a quality from God that we can ask for. When we look at uh, 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 Stephen and the qualities that he had, he is a man who is full of the Holy Spirit. He has those qualities love, faith, kindness, goodness, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, self control, all of these things love, joy, peace, all of these. He's full of the Holy Spirit, he's full of wisdom, he is full of faith. He trusts in God and what God has said and what God is all about. You know, faith is something that is absolutely foundational. And a lack of faith has gone back to the very beginning of time. You realize when we look at Adam and Eve, the problem was a lack of faith God had said. And the serpent said, has God really said? He's planting a seed of doubt. And Eve chose to believe the serpent Have faith in the serpent and what the serpent says versus what God has revealed versus what God had said. And if you look at the problem that happens in just a couple of chapters later, when you have Cain and Abel, in fact, the very next chapter in Genesis, and Cain, his sacrifice was not acceptable because it was not done in faith, Hebrews 11 would teach that Abel offered a more accepta- acceptable sacrifice because it was done by faith, by what God has revealed, trusting in God and what he has said to do. This man, Stephen, is full of faith. Stephen is also a man who is full of grace. You know, to whom much is given, much will be required, Luke 12:48. Stephen is full, isn't he? Sometimes we can be full. We can be full of food after having a, a, a big lunch. Uh, again, speaking of last week, there were times where some of us or everybody had too much to eat or too much coffee to stay awake. Sometimes we can be so full that we just can't move. Sometimes full can sound like it's a bad thing if someone's full of himself but Stephen, this man of God, is so incredibly Christ-like. He is full of the Holy Spirit. He is full of wisdom. He is full of faith. He is full of grace. You know, Colossians 4 and verse 6 would say, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Paul would say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And Stephen is also full of power. Again, verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs. Stephen was full of grace and power. God gave him these special things to use for his glory and to teach others about him. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5 says, for we know, brethren, loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake aren't you thankful that the, the the gospel is not based on our own merit and our own power to persuade although we need to knowing the fear of God persuade men but that the power of the gospel rests in God who gave it In Christ, who is the reality of the gospel, Stephen is a man who is so Christ-like in his life. And the reason I say that is because Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. You see the Holy Spirit descending in Matthew chapter 3 and resting upon Him. You see in Luke 2 and verse 52 that Jesus grew in wisdom and in favor with God and with man When you see Jesus, who at the end of his life, he could say that I have done all the work, God, that you have given me to do, and he trusted God to glorify him as he was glorified before. In John chapter 1, Jesus is so full of grace that the text would say that Moses, through, through Moses came the law, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and He has poured out upon us grace upon grace. Do you want to talk about Jesus' power, how He was able to heal the blind, to raise the dead, to walk on water, to forgive sins, when you consider Stephen, and you see the kind of man that Stephen was, Stephen would simply say, I just want to be like my Lord. Stephen's character is incredibly Christ-like. And by the way, you look through Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, that's not the only thing that you're going to see that will connect Stephen and Christ. In fact, the Scripture reading just as uh, a moment ago uh, that sure does seem like a very similar accusation is thrown against Stephen that was thrown against his Lord. Why was Stephen able to endure to the end? I would submit to you it's because the characteristics that he developed in his life were the characteristics of Christ that he wanted to have in his life. But not only, not only is Stephen Christ-like in character, his sermon is so incredibly God-centered, we ought to preach more like Stephen today. Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7 has fallen on hard times. you have some folks who want to look at this sermon and try to suggest that Stephen goes from one half-hearted idea, one uh, half-thought idea, just this haphazard way of trying to buy time because he knows what's coming. And they really have no idea how to break this sermon down and to see any flow of thought. And for folks like that who see sermon, uh, this, this sermon from Stephen as this amalgamation of just random ideas trying to buy time, we can say th- with all due respect to them, it's easy to demis- dismiss something when we don't understand it, and it's too dangerous sometimes to dismiss something solely because we personally do not understand it. Stephen, when you look at his sermon, knew a whole lot more about the Old Testament than these folks do. And he knew God far better than his accusers then and his accusers now. And we ought to be careful because we are treading on the holy ground of God's Word And when we look at Stephen's sermon, remember the accusation against Stephen that he is trying to get the people to go against the law of Moses, that he has said he's going to destroy this temple and in three days rebuild it. Sound a lot like Christ? And it's interesting because in Acts chapter 6, in verse 3, pick out from you seven men of good repute, they have a great reputation. And with Stephen preaching and and showing the arguments of his accusers to be false and showing that Jesus is the Christ and proclaiming the gospel, all of the attacks on him are an attack on his character and on who he truly is. How will Stephen respond? They've already been unable to withstand his wisdom. What about these accusations? Stephen points out to these people in this kangaroo court that God is the one in charge. We do not have time to go through the sermon in great detail. But when we look at this sermon and how Stephen preaches this lesson to his accusers because chapter 7 opens up, the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. He begins to mention Abraham. And in chapter 7 and verse 9, he shifts his focus over to Joseph. And then in a massive portion of the text, he speaks about Moses. And from Moses, he goes to Joshua, and then to David, and to Solomon, and then to Isaiah. What is the accusation against Stephen? They secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, verse 12, and the elders and the scribes, they came and seized him, brought him before the council. They set up false wis- witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. It's the same accusations that were leveled against Jesus. It's the same accusations And it's the same problem that the Jews had for so many years. Back all the way in Jeremiah's day when Jeremiah would say, Babylon is coming. He's going to destroy the temple. And false prophets of that day would say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He'll never destroy this place. This is his house. And oh, how they were wrong. How God had left the temple because of the rampant wickedness and sin of his people. And the problem in the first century with these people who had rejected Christ already was they are still focused on the temple. And when we look at this sermon, I want us to ask and answer two questions. Where is God? What does he do? Where is God and what does he do? And if you look at the sermon breakdown, Abraham. Acts chapter 7 and verse 3. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he he lived in Haran. Notice, where is God? He appears. The God of glory appears to Abraham. That's before the temple. And what what does God do? He tells Abraham, get out of your country. Go from your land to a place I'll show you. When you get down to verse 9 and you look at Joseph, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Where is God? He is with Joseph. And what does he do? He takes care of him. And you read about God protecting Joseph and, and protecting the family that's based on the promise of Abraham. And when you get to Moses, where is God? Notice in verse 17. But at the time of the promise drew near, when God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive at this time. Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. Where is God? He's with Moses. And he recounts Moses' life, and on several occasions you see in Moses' life, uh, ver, not just verse 20, but notice verse 30, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. And there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Where is God? He's at the burning bush and Moses is there and God is revealing himself and what God wants him to do. And in verse 45... Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua where they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before the fathers. Where was God in Joshua's day? He is the Lord of hosts. He was going before them. He is the one who is driving out the enemies. He's with His people. With David and Solomon. God drove out before our fathers so that it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God. Uh, for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. It's not even until you get to Solomon that that temple that they held up so highly is even built. Where is God? He's with Abraham. He's with Joseph. He's with Moses. He's with Joshua and the people. He's with David. He's with Solomon. And when Isaiah speaks of God. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God is so far above and beyond the temple that he couldn't even dwell with all of his presence if he wanted to. He's too powerful. And the point that Isaiah makes is that God is supreme. And when you look through the Old Testament and in the book of Ezekiel, you have the glory of the Lord, God's, God's presence leaving the temple. And when you see later in time God saying, do you remember the temple and its former glory? The later glory will not be like the former. It's going to be far better. And he says, I am still with you. That was the concern of the Israelites when they came back from captivity is where is God? His temple is gone. God says, I am still with you. And he says, later there's going to come a time where the glory of God, his presence is going to be even more marvelous compare Acts chapter 2. Where is God and what does he do? And there's another question we can ask through these. What did the people do? The sons of Jacob were jealous of Joseph and sold him into captivity. The Israelites rejected Moses the first time he tried to reconcile his brothers, they rejected him again. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. They rejected Moses. They really refused to obey God and they turned back to Egypt and, and made themselves gods. Uh, in 7 and verse 40. And where were those gods? Let's ask this question. Where were those gods? They were in their hands. Instead of the people being in God's hands, these gods were made by man's hands, just like the temple. And it too would become an idol. From the time of the wilderness wandering until the time of the Babylonian captivity, over 700 years of God's patience, while the people continuously turned to idols, when God was in their midst. And then when that wasn't enough, God took on flesh, being made in the likeness of man, Emmanuel, God with us. The righteous one you now betrayed and murdered. Notice 51 and following. You stiff-necked people, you did not keep it. Where is God and what does he do? And you look at all the times the Israelites have went against him, have made idols, even of the things that God intended for good, they turned into an idol. The sermon ends, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Him. But He, full of the Holy Spirit, there's that word again, full. Gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears and rushed together at Him. They cast Him out of the city and stoned Him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they were stoning Stephen. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Look back at chapter 6. And read verse 15. And gazing at him, the people gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Exodus 34, 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony in his hand and his face, and he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Exodus thirty-four twenty-nine. Why did Moses' face shine? Because he was with the Lord. Why did Stephen's face shine? Why was it like the face of an angel? Something that was so different than a normal man's face because the Lord was with him. In Stephen's final moments, he sees heaven opened up, and he sees this, this, this kangaroo court before him, but he sees the courtroom of God above them. And Jesus does something that is so tremendous and so wonderful and so honoring Because Jesus is said at this time to be seated at the right hand of God. But for this man, Stephen, Jesus stands up. And Stephen's final request Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Where is God? With Stephen, what does he do? The text ends talking about a man named Saul. Stephen's final request is given. Stephen stood with God and God stood with him. His life was full of faith. His life was full of the Spirit. His life was full of grace. A man that is so blessed by God, uh, he never found a task too demeaning nor a soul too unworthy. His life was full of power and now he is with the Lord. Do we have the kind of faith that is full Or is there other stuff in the way of our trust in God? It's easy to have trust in other things, isn't it, sometimes? Politics and money and jobs and family. Those things will always fail. Is our fruit, is our life full of the fruit of the Spirit or do the fruits that we bear showcase a malnourished and unhealthy life? Do we trust in our own devices or in the power of God, His gospel, His ability to answer prayers, His word, His armor? Stephen was full of grace. You realize grace and humility go hand in hand? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How do we treat our enemies? Mercilessly mocking them on social media? getting into those political and moral arguments all over the place, taking pot shots when we can. But Stephen says, Father, forgive them. How Christ-like. How God-honoring. And years after Stephen died, he was not forgotten because when Paul is on trial for his faith, Acts twenty two twenty, 20, and he reaccounts his faith, and when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed them. Paul didn't forget Stephen's sacrifice. Paul was there. I wonder if Paul heard that final request from Stephen. Father, forgive them because a young man was forgiven, Saul, who became Paul. Paul remembered Stephen's true character. He had a lasting impact and influence even after his death. Stephen encourages us. It encourages all of us, I hope. It encourages me to be more Christ-like in character and more God-focused in life because I want to stand with God so that He'll stand with me. Let's ask the same questions we've been asking through this sermon. Where is God? He's here waiting. What does He do? You know, He is willing to save you. He saves to the uttermost. And the question is, simply turns back on us, what will we do? If we can help you this morning, come as we stand
0: and sing.